Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Navjot Lada, analysis editor, and we're coming to you from the Preventing Overdiagnosis conference in Quebec, Canada, where we're now on day three of discussions about um, overdiagnosis and overuse of medicine and how that might be harming the healthy. Um, and I'm delighted to be joined now by um, three guests who've been attending the conference, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Jess, if we start with you. Uh, I'm Jessica Audie. I'm a family doctor on Vancouver Island in BC, and I do mainly geriatrics and uh, palliative care right now. Great. Thank you for joining us. And David? Hi, I'm David Warriner. I'm a cardiology trainee based in Sheffield in the UK. And Jack? Hi, Jack O'Sullivan, an emergency department senior house officer and PhD student from the University of Oxford. Great. And um, we've been talking to people over the past couple of days about how they've come to be interested in overdiagnosis and the sort of points or experiences where they have felt compelled to do something um, about about this issue. Um, so if we just go around, and Jess, I'll ask you do, you, do you have any particular moments or experiences that you realise this was an issue? Well, I think it's a combination of, of things. I've In Canada, we do a lot of our training in rural settings, so, so working in a resource-limited environment, you're already thinking that way. Um, but I do remember one particular moment, one particular patient was doing rounds at a long-term care nursing facility and we did a care conference with a patient who had diabetes and we were looking at her numbers and we were concerned because her diabetes was not well controlled. And um, she didn't attend the conference, her family did, but later we went to go and see her. And when we knocked on the door, my preceptor my teacher told me, oh, this is a wonderful woman. This is her favorite hockey team. She's really a big fan. And he told me all about her as a human being. And when we opened the door, she was there clutching chocolate bars, caught red-handed. And it was a kind of a sudden moment looking at that, that um, picture on her face of they've caught me. Mm. <laughs> and we had a very illuminating discussion um, about whether we needed to worry about her eating chocolate bars, whether we needed to worry about her diabetes numbers, because here was a lady who was probably within the last couple of years of her life. From that conversation and from that way of thinking, I started realizing, you know, it probably matters more about who she is and what what she cares about than any number that we can measure. And I think that started an ongoing kind of mentorship with this with this preceptor, um, where I looked through a different lens. So that, that just the look on her face, I think, started really tipping me in that direction. So an understanding of the kind of contextual factors about and seeing patients as people I guess is what you're saying yeah and that had always been a part of things but that moment sort of polarized it for me crystallized things okay Mm -hmm. thank you and David did you have any experiences memories that you can think of yeah I think for me it probably started off when I was a foundation year two uh, doctor working in pediatrics so every every test every treatment you uh, gave to a child you had to justify to consultants which you know because it's radiation to a child you can't just really nearly old x-rays and things so I think that really started me thinking about having more precise medicine I think really um, being more r- rational and, and when you're ordering tests and um, just being aware of the I guess the financial consequences of, of poor decision making I think really. There's a really interesting point um, in I think Wendy Levinson from Choosing Wiser Canada was talking this morning about how a group of Canadian I guess junior doctors and students came together to come up with recommendations and one of them is don't don't order tests because you anticipate that your boss might want them. That's right. I mean, I've definitely done that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Guilty. Yeah. Yeah. So so just um, 
yeah, I guess applying that rationale that you have in children to everybody. To everyone, exactly. Do that for everybody, because exactly. that radiation risk is applies to everyone. Yeah, that's a good one. And Jack. Yeah, for, so for me, it started I think when I was an intern in Australia, so the equivalent of a, a foundation year one doctor in the UK. And I think when you're at that level, you are the one that has to go and organise and do mm-hmm. all the tests. And I found when I was doing general medicine, surgery, emergency medicine, we ordered lots and lots of tests. The bosses ordered lots and lots of tests and they they were good clinicians. But I was the one having to go and organize (laughs) and do lots and lots of the work, which was lots of work. And often the tests, more often than not, the tests came back normal. They kept coming back normal, 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 normal. And I just sort of figured, you know, are these tests really necessary? You know, and there was people that were having lightheadedness and you know potentially a loss of consciousness we're getting EEGs and brain scanning of their brain which always came back normal and everyone always knew <laughs> it was going to come back normal um, there's one particular example that really really stands out and perhaps played a part in me going to Oxford and really wanting to investigate this further and that was a patient that I was looking after and she'd reversed into another car so she was going incredibly slowly, you know, two or three, five kilometers an hour. So she came into the emergency department and, you know, the emergency department is so busy. The consultant boss sort of sees everyone very quickly at the start. He sort of said, car crash, okay, we're gonna, we've got to look after you. We've got to keep you for a couple of hours. So um, he put her into sort of the non-acute section of the emergency department and, and tasked me as the junior doctor to look after her and just make sure nothing happened to her. So to, to the consultant's credit, he didn't rush and do a scan of her brain because he didn't think it was necessary. Um, and I sort of discussed with her and said, look, when people have had car crashes, even though yours was incredibly low speed, people's main concern is about people's heads there, although we think it's very, very, very unlikely. And you, Potentially, I did her a disservice because once that was said, she really got going about, oh, well, okay, that scares me a little bit. What can we do? And I said, well, look, you know, your examination's completely normal. I don't think any doctor really around would think that there's anything to suspect. We're just being overly cautious by keeping an eye on you here. And then she led to some natural questions about, well, is there something that we can do to, to, to confirm or refute this? said, well, now that you ask, that is, <laughs> you know, the, the, the gold standard would be a, a scan of the head, a CT scan. She said, well, why can't I get that? Yeah. And, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I spoke to her about radiation risks and, you know, she still said, well, look, I really, I really want that. I think I want that definitive answer. So I spoke to my boss and he said, okay, well, it's not, it's not a prison. If she wants it, let's, let's, mm. let's go ahead with it. And she got it. And course there was there was no hemorrhage but she came back with this ill-defined lesion in her brain oh no oh no <laughs> so i had this moment as the recognition <laughs> yeah yeah the junior doctor had to then go and speak to a patient who'd been anxious about yeah. coming in about now some lesion that we yeah. didn't know what was going on and said look don't have a don't have any bleeding in your brain but this is lesion the radiologist doesn't really know what it is we don't really know what it is we're really sorry you have to come back in two weeks Another scan, go to the neurosurgeon. So it was terrible. And that was, I was like, actually, stopping the test initially is where we let her down. 
in that regard. What I find quite interesting is um, the... Because I think we all recognise that, you know, this happens a lot in whatever health system that we work in. These kind of situations arise time and time again. But what doesn't happen all the time is people... The physicians usually taking a step back and sort of saying I need to do things differently often you have an awareness but that culture is so hard to change and I guess the three of you are somewhat anomalous um, perhaps compared to your peers because you're all um, doing various the activities that you do obviously this is something you care about and, and have wanted to pursue further but um, what do you think it is that that made you want to sort of step outside that kind of the way that that sort of typical culture of the way things are being done and and what how how do you think you're different to your colleagues or do you think there's not much that se- separates you from your colleagues but you've had the opportunity or I don't know is that something you thought about or yeah it's a good point actually what differentiates us from the rest of the medical workforce and why do we choose choose why so why do we choose to come to this conference because I feel like a lot yeah. of a lot of doctors or a lot of my you know peers friends who I speak to will all recognize these as issues that are important but probably haven't engaged with them in the same way and I feel like in the discussions we've been having about um, you know how systems changes might be needed to address over diagnosis and culture change will be necessary I, I don't know I think having an understanding of why some people feel able to or compelled to do something about it that's a huge question. I, I know. Think if, if we can answer, question. it would be very useful. <laughs> I mean, I, I think of myself as a, a strong ideas weekly held sort of person. That I'm. I really need a concrete understanding. I like to know the details about why something is how it is. But if you can prove to me that I've got it wrong, and and I and I accept that, and I explore it for myself, and and look at it from a few different angles, then I'll change what I do quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And. Um, and that's something that I don't always see in, in my peers, mm-hmm. that um, I, I don't know where, where that comes from, but I think I, I'm the, just the sort of person who, even dealing with uncertainty, which is extremely common in, mm. in family medicine, I'm okay with being uncertain if I know that uncertainty is normal in that situation. Yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 and yeah. until I learn more, until I and I, and I and I take the time to discover and explore things, um, then that's okay but some people are not comfortable with uncertainty mm-hmm. maybe in how we grew up being I was always encouraged to ask why yeah yeah interestingly Rita Redberg when she spoke yesterday talked about how um Shrew grew up not very well off in Brooklyn and had a strong sense of understanding of the ideas of use overuse reuse an economy yeah. and that kind of thing yeah, and she yeah, said yeah. that that had been That's quite formative for her which is really fascinating um, and Jess, you also mentioned it sounds like you had quite an influential preceptor, a teacher. I mean, I wonder what the role of having sort mm, of strong mentors and role models is. I think is. that's a part of it. You have to be, inter- I mean, you attract towards people who have similar values. Yeah, so I think that yeah. was already in me. I think one thing that unites all of us possibly is the fact that we quite enjoy generalism, maybe. I mean, I'm a cardiologist by training, but I really enjoy general medicine as well. And obviously, you're a general practitioner and you're thinking about cardiology, but maybe general practice as well. So I think. That concept of, I don't know, just enjoying and embracing generalism, I think, is possibly quite important. Do you think that implies that you have a sort of holistic Yeah, possibly. Uh, yeah, people? I guess a holistic approach to people. And not, I'm not really interested in tests, to be honest. I'm more interested in the history and the examination and the actual the story and why they're here, why they're here now. Mm-hmm. Which I think is much more powerful than a troponin or, yeah. or, mm-hmm. or, or, or whatever, I think. Definitely. And what about when you speak to your peers about these issues? Or do you speak to your peers about these issues? And do you feel that that's... 
um, when I say these issues, I mean things over diagnosis, over treatment. Are, are these recognised among your colleagues? Yeah, I must admit, I've never, I've never really talked to the, the, the registrars actually in Sheffield about it. But um, do they um, know that it's something you're interested yeah, in? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah but they, yeah. they've never felt. Like no, I don't know. Say, really. Maybe what is it about this? Yeah, yeah, maybe it's a bit of a I don't know Pandora's box. You don't want to kind of open yeah. it, right? Um, I mean, I think you've hit on something there, this idea that, oh, if I've got so much going on that I have to deal with, if I sort of prod this, I'll have to change a whole way of doing things. That just seems a bit overwhelming. Yeah. I think people that I, or colleagues that I speak to aren't interested in this issue. I think one thing that seems to be common in people that are interested in is how much they're engaged with the financial sustainability Mm -hmm. of healthcare systems. I think that's one thing that really got me, Australia's got a universal healthcare system, the NHS obviously in the UK, and actually, I don't know if we're on a sustainable trajectory, it seems like we're not. Um, So I think in the UK people are interested in that, but the second point I think is what discourages people engaging is the culture and also the medico-legal current culture regarding risk. Yeah. I think... um, clinicians and colleagues may be interested in engaging in this but when it comes down to taking on risks with the individual patient so not doing a test then they are inheriting lots of risk if they do a test then they're not inheriting risk and I think when it comes down to it it's really hard to currently persuade doctors away from doing that because of the current climate there's no incentive to take on the risk there's lots of incentive disincentives to and we're also now joined by Imran Sajid, who's been attending the conference as well. Um, Imran, just to pick up on some of those points, um, can you introduce yourself and then also tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing trying to influence peers on issues of overdiagnosis and overuse? Yeah, so I'm Imran Sajid. I'm a family physician with an interest in pain, um, and I am a healthcare commissioner. And I look after various bits of the health economy locally. Um, locally being? In, in, yeah, in, in West and Northwest London as a sector. Um, and I think it, it, it's a fascinating issue. For me, the, the, the real bridge to develop here is, is getting the healthcare policymakers, uh, the, the academics who understand the data and the trends and the risks and the evidence of benefits and harms, and then also the, the care providers and the clinical clinician leaders to all be speaking honestly with one another because everyone has an invaluable perspective. Everyone sees one small part of the overall picture. Um, and everyone has slightly different motivations. So, you know, the academics, they are usually very passionate about a message such as this, and they, they are pushed to raise awareness and get publications. Um, you've got your clinician leaders who are very driven to usually protect their professions, their colleagues, their departments from all the rising pressures that are happening in the healthcare system. Healthcare policymakers, which are usually government organisations or insurance organisations, they're usually very driven to impress the public or save money. Um, and then finally, you have your care providers who fundamentally are for-profit organisations. And then you have your patients who are kind of in, in the middle of all of this. You know, some of this information is, is, tr- is transparent to them, but a lot of it is invisible. And every, so everyone has different motivations. And I think it's, the important thing is getting all these different perspectives and all these people who they all have a very key element and key understanding of the overall picture to talk to one another when it comes to overdiagnosis and clinical need and clinical utility of treatments and tests um, and that's for me that's the big the, the big hurdle is getting it because everyone thinks differently everyone approaches mm-hmm. problems differently um, so how do we bridge that gap 
hell. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, I leave, leave you to fix, well, fix that one. <laughs> and I, I mean, I think for me, one of the things I've really taken away from this week is the fact that there are certain things which there is a lot of attention on in the UK and the NHS, so whether it's kind of, you know, political issues around austerity and patient demand and all, you know, and, and not to distract with those are all very valid areas of interest and areas to consider. But I do think that overdiagnosis is actually such a big key player when it comes to rising healthcare costs um, and stress on the healthcare system. Um, and I think that there are there are a lot of kind of public health experts that would, would agree that actually this is probably one of the biggest areas of mileage for healthcare policymakers. If you are looking at cost, um, yes, you can have lots of long conversations about how much of our GDP do we spend on healthcare, um, but there is real mileage that healthcare policymakers should adopt um, principles around overdiagnosis and overtreatment very actively in their strategies because um, it is really shown to be a major driver of, of healthcare costs. So that's one of the things you've taken away from the conference, that there are ways to make this compelling to the yeah. different groups. Yeah, and I think, I, I think it was Andre Picard was saying how the problem is overdiagnosis has, has very altruistic and valid um, reasoning for actual patient benefit, but patients can perceive it as this is just some bureaucrat, penny-pinching bureaucrat trying to save some money. Um, and that, that's the trick. It's, it's a tricky try and unpin it away from that. That was a problem with the messaging mm. around choosing wisely, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. I, think, yeah. I, I think a lot of people perceived it that way. It's one of the key reasons. So Choosing Wisely Canada um, hasn't emphasised the cost aspect yeah. because we have a not entirely universal healthcare system, but something of it. And, and because you can make good decisions without even considering costs, it, it just happens that yeah. Yeah, by not, not doing bad things to people or things that they don't want or aren't consistent with their goals and wishes, we happen to save money and that's a really nice side effect and I think why there's been a good discussion with government. Uh, but in the United States campaign on choosing wisely, cost is actually one mm. of the key things that matters because they're health consumers, not patients, where people are paying out of pocket. So in the choosing wisely, you know, the top five questions you should ask your doctor, the fifth one in the US is about cost. Well, let's um, talk to you all about what your sort of takeaways from the conference have been. Um, it's been a really rich um, few days, I think. Um, David, let's start with you. What, what are you? Yeah, thinking? yeah. I think I really like the um, the choosing wisely kind of the the stars program that they have with mm. with medical students. I think it's really important to start as, as early as possible. Can you explain a bit what? what yeah, that is? so the stars program essentially is. Um, uh, recruiting medical students to sort of champion choosing wisely and, and they've come up with their own list of six things that you should or sh shouldn't be doing um, with patients or uh, uh, medical students in the university and things. Yeah, there is an argument that, that it's too late for us. Yeah. <laughs> As yeah. a generation where our patterns are ingrained, but you know, you can influence a younger generation. Yeah. Richard Redberg spoken about that. Yeah, and I, spoke about that. and I think also when, you, when you're younger, you can. You can, I think someone mentioned yesterday, you can ask the silly questions when you're a medical mm. student. You don't feel so, once you're a doctor, I can't ask that because actually I should know that, but actually, mm. you know, we're all, we're all human, really. And Jack, how about you? Um, I think this conference, one of the themes that's come up is overuse. And I know that's been a theme in other conferences, but particularly this conference, I think, is focused on that. And I think when you talk about overuse, you have to first start by defining appropriateness. And actually, that is really challenging. Mm. And particularly challenging when defining appropriateness from, from test use, I think. And a, a few of the talks have 
talk, spoken about different ways to try and define appropriateness with, with test use. And I think the challenges emerge comparing overuse uh, in drugs when you're looking at treatments. You can, when you're looking at treatments, you can look at things like mortality. Uh, but when you're looking at tests, tests are really the start of a pathway for a patient. So it's hard on a population level to say if something's appropriate or, or inappropriate. So, you know, the messages that have come through is, is A, it's really challenging. Every, every metric or criteria is slightly imperfect and probably the best way to look at identifying inappropriate tests is to look at a composite of this, whether it's geographical variation, trends over time, guidelines, bearing in mind all of them have limitations. That feels like quite an urgent thing to crack, I think, given that, you know, we're hearing people talk about the array of new diagnostics mm. that are coming, that, you know, venture capital is sinking lots of money into. Um, mm. Was it Vinay Prasad who spoke about a, a single blood test that can diagnose every type of cancer? You know, these yeah, sorts yeah, of things, yeah. you, having a clear parameter of what what is appropriate mm. seems to me to be really important. Yeah, that's yeah. good. I think one of the, the issues that's arisen probably historically is we're focused on diagnostic accuracy mm. when we're thinking about tests. And, you know, I think actually, like the grade criteria does when they think about diagnostic tests, tests should be considered an intervention. So they should be, before they're approved, in a randomised controlled trial where group A got a test and group B didn't get a test. We can't actually tell if they're any good just from diagnostic accuracy. Yeah, there's a sort of blanket assumption that they're all good, but actually we don't know what happens if you don't don't test someone. Yeah. And Jess, how about you? Uh, well, this is my fourth preventing overdiagnosis conference, and I think in the past I've left with a feeling that probably knowledge translation was really something that's important. It, it takes so long for the evidence that we generate to make it into clinical practice, to uh, be conveyed to patients in a way that they can um, understand and, and personalize. But this year was a little different for me. There was a bit more patient representation, a bit more patient voice. And I'm starting to wonder if um, if there needs to be knowledge translation in the other direction so that what patients are saying clearly isn't getting across to their physician. It's not getting across to policymakers. Um, patients are being more involved in committees and, and, and policy making, but sometimes it seems more like lip service or, or you know, the token tick the box, we've got a patient on our panel, rather than meaningful engagement. And I think um, even as a physician, I'm a little bit scared about what, what that would look like for more meaningful engagement, because I, you just don't see it very often. But I'm thinking leaving here that in my own practice and in the committees and other work that I do, that, that I need to pay more attention to how to convey the message from patients up the up the chain mm. and not the message from doctors and yeah. policies back down. It's it's got to go both ways, and we have yeah. to meet somewhere in the middle. And maybe there is a language problem or a um, um, the way that the information is shared. Mm. It's it's not being heard. So maybe we do need to change how that message is is mm. conveyed. Good point. Um, well, on that very thoughtful note from Jess, um, Imran, thank you, Jack, David, Jess, thanks so much thank for joining us. Enjoy the rest of the conference. So that's the end of our coverage from Preventing Overdiagnosis 2017. If you've listened to all of our podcasts and it's inspired you to find out more about Too Much Medicine, then have a look at our campaign page, which you can find at www.bmj.com forward slash too much medicine. That's too hyphen much hyphen medicine. 
Thanks for listening. 